Please, that would be wonderful. We can continue our conversations uh, as we have our refreshments afterwards. Um, but if you have your Bible, please do turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. It'll be really helpful for you to have that open and in front of you as we work down through it. As we turn to God's Word, though, let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. How good to sing of the grace uh, that has saved us, your grace that has redeemed us. And Father, once again now, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would come and instruct us through your word and your spirit. We need light to see what you want us to see here. And Father, we pray that you would just settle us, help us to focus, and we pray that you would make the book live to us in this moment. Lord, just come and help us. Help me to be faithful with your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak through what has been spoken and accomplish good things among us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I shared that I was doing my first Olympic distance triathlon yesterday and if, that if I would be standing here in the pulpit today, you would know that I survived to tell the tale. Well, I'm here, and I'm glad to report that I made it round, and uh, very glad to be in the pulpit this morning. Hopefully, I'll not go into cramp and need anyone to stretch me out in the middle of this. But I say that because before our race yesterday, down in Kildare, we had a race safety briefing. And during this, you're given various instructions to make sure everyone's safe during the triathlon. And one of the things you're specifically told is that if you get into trouble during the swim, you're told to roll onto your back and put your hand up in the air. And you're told that if you do this, lifeguards will swoop in and they will save you. And often in such briefings, they'll say something like this, when they come to save you, just let them save you. Don't thrash around, don't try to save yourself or help them, just let them save you. Don't try to be a hero. And it struck me again, as I thought about this over the weekend, that is such an apt picture of what Paul has been saying to the Galatians in this letter we've been studying. He has been saying to the Galatians, just let Jesus save you. You don't need to add any self-effort. You just have to rest your faith in him and let him save you. And we've seen that Paul was writing this to the Galatians because of the false teachers who had infiltrated the church there and had been saying, Jesus alone is not enough to save you. This group of false teachers known as the Judaizers, they were saying that self-effort is a key part of salvation. If you can do enough religious acts of devotion, then you can be in the right with God. But Paul saw that this would make the Galatians slaves to fear because they could never know if they had done enough for God to accept them. He saw that this false teaching would destroy the Galatian Christians' assurance and their sense of security and rest 
in God's love. So he writes this letter, and we've seen that he's been doing all he can to convince the Galatians that Christ alone is all you need to be right with God. In chapter 1, he reminded them of his own conversion experience, where he came to see the truth for himself, that faith in Christ alone is all that is needed to save you. In chapter 2, he's reminded the Galatians of how the first apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship and affirmed his ministry and his message and told him to bring this message to the nations, to the Gentiles. In chapter 3, he reminded the Galatian Christians how they came to know this truth that Christ alone is enough to save. They experienced the power of the Holy Spirit accompanying this message. And then last week, we heard Paul say, you Galatians have tasted all of this goodness in Christ. You're no longer slaves in Christ, your sons. Through self-effort leads to slavery, while salvation through receiving and resting in Christ brings freedom. And then it hits him. Ishmael and Isaac. He goes back to a story in the Old Testament and he draws on that historic account of Abraham's two sons, one called Ishmael and one called Isaac. And each son was born to a different mother, Hagar and Sarah. One son, Ishmael, is brought into existence by self-effort, and he's born into slavery. And the other son, Isaac, is brought into existence by supernatural provision from God through a promise, and he's free. And Paul skillfully uses this illustration throughout our passage to help the Galatians and us see this simple truth. Salvation through self-effort leads to slavery, slavish thinking, slavish living, whilst trusting in Christ alone sets us free to enjoy the blessing of our heavenly Father God without fear. Salvation through self-effort leads to slavery. Salvation by trusting in Christ alone leads to freedom and blessing. That's what he wants the Galatians to get, and that's what he wants us to get. And we need to hear this reminder this morning, because even if we're Christians for a long time, or just a short time, it is very easy at times to fall back into a slavish, salvation through self-effort way of thinking. It's easy for us to start relating to God as a kind of if I've been really good and done enough good things, then God will like me today. But if I haven't done enough good things, well, then God doesn't like me today. We can be free and yet keep thinking like slaves. And so this illustration is used by Paul to help us really grasp once again the freedom that is ours in Christ. The text is, in some ways on first reading, a bit complex and a wee bit confusing. I'm sure as Lindsay was reading that, you were like, whoa, what do you do with that? But actually, let's just break it down into three simple parts, and you'll see that Paul is just working this illustration to help us get this simple point. Self-effort salvation leads to slavery. Trusting in Christ leads to freedom. 
The first thing he does is verses 21 to 23, in verses 21 to 23 is he just sets up this illustration. I'm going to call it the illustration of two mums and two sons. Verse 21, Paul speaks directly now to those in Galatia who are kind of going back into this old slavish system, living under the law, trying to earn their own salvation. Now, that phrase, under the law, is an expression Paul has already used a few times in the letter to speak of those who think the way to God is by observance of different religious rules. It's a way of speaking of anyone who thinks they can earn salvation through self-effort. He says there, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's meeting the false teachers, these Judaizers, on their own turf, and he's saying, right, well, you say you want to be under the law. Let's look at what the law says. Let's look at the Old Testament scriptures and see how they really instruct us. And he directs them in verse 22 straight away to the father of Judaism, Abraham, and he says, it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing this illustration from Genesis chapter 16. There, if you don't remember the account, we're told that Abraham had a wife called Sarah, and they were in a place of waiting. God had made Abraham a promise that he would have a son with Sarah. Through this promised son, God had said great blessing would come. In fact, all nations would be blessed eventually through this coming promised son. But several years had passed since God had made the promise to Abraham and Sarah. And eventually, in Genesis chapter 16, we read that Sarah's patient had run out. Patience had run out. Sarah says to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Notice not you shall obtain children by her, but that I shall obtain children by her. Abraham did so. And this slave, this maidservant, this Egyptian woman named Hagar conceived, and she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. But as the story continues in Genesis 16, we soon learn that Abraham and Sarah had jumped the gun a bit because God had not forgotten his promise. He just didn't fulfill it on the timeline they expected. I wonder if you ever experienced that. Well, in Genesis 17, God came to Abraham again and said, I will bless Sarah and I'll give you a son by her. Abraham laughed and he said, Really, shall a son be born to a man 100 years old and a woman past the age of childbearing who's 90 years old? It was as if Abraham was saying, Look, Lord, can we not just proceed with Ishmael? And the Lord said, No, Sarah will bear a son and you're to give him the name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. So in verse 22 of our passage in Galatians 4, we know that Abraham is speaking of this 
slave woman Hagar, to whom was born Ishmael. They had the status of slaves. And then he's also speaking of the free woman, Sarah, to whom was born Isaac. They had the status of free people. And he's setting up these two lines as an illustration. In verse 23, Paul develops the account by pointing out that these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac, were not just born of a different mother, but they were actually born of a different manner. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now that phrase, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, means essentially by human effort. Ishmael was born by human will and by self-effort. Abram and Sarah didn't seem to be working out for them to have a child, so they thought, let's get Hagar and we'll bring about the promise through her. They thought they could bring about the blessing of God by taking things into their own hands. Ishmael was born by a natural process. Contrasting this then, Isaac was born supernaturally through a promise. This was something that God brought about. Because we know a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who is past the age of childbearing, they can't have children naturally. In Genesis 21.1 we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So Ishmael came through the flesh, through self-effort, through human will. Isaac came through a promise, a supernatural act of God to bring this life. And notice how as, Abraham, or as Paul sets up this illustration, he doesn't even give any of the people their names in the text yet. He's setting up an illustration. He wants you to get. There are two lines I want you to think about. The line of self-effort and slavery and the line of promise and freedom. And they're just sitting there. Now, we're going to develop this in a moment, but just before we move on, it's hard to resist asking ourselves, do we ever find ourselves in the place of Abraham and Sarah? Have you ever been there waiting on God? For him to come through and do something that he's promised. And you are struggling to work out why God seems to be holding back. Sometimes we can be tempted to try and help God along. And yet I think this recounting the narrative again of Abraham and Sarah just reminds us again, if we're in a place of waiting... We don't understand what's going on in our lives. We don't understand why we're, promise, why we're praying and God doesn't seem to be answering. We're waiting. If you're in that place, let me encourage you, keep trusting the Lord. Keep waiting on him in faith. He will come through. Not always in our timeline, but he will come through. Keep trusting him and be patient. So, after setting up the illustration, now in verses 24 to 27, Paul develops and explains the illustration. 
Essentially, now, instead of thinking of the two mums and two sons, I'm going to call this bit two approaches to salvation. Verse 24. Paul now moves on to explain what he's getting at. He says, now, this may be interpreted allegorically. And I don't think he means much more there than just figuratively. These women and their sons actually represent two entirely different approaches to salvation, to how you can be made right with God. He says, look, these two illustrations, these these two mums, two sons, they represent two covenants. A covenant means an agreement, a promise that God has made. He says, Hagar and Ishmael on this side, they represent Mount Sinai. Now, what does that mean? Well, Mount Sinai is where God established the covenant with Moses. It's where he gave the Ten Commandments, the law. He established a covenant with Moses and Israel that was, in a way, based on keeping the law to enjoy God's blessing. It was a kind of covenant of doing. You obey the law, and you'll be in God's good books. But if you fail to keep the law, you'll come under the curse of the law. Remember how back in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul used this, and he said, you know, cursed is anyone who doesn't keep the law. So if you try to keep the law, you're under a curse, because you fail to keep the law. And Paul's saying, right, this, this line of Hagar and Ishmael, self-effort, brought about by the flesh, slavery, he's saying that's like the Mosaic Covenant. Back in chapter 3, Paul had explained, because of our sin, our being weakened by our sin, we can't keep the law. We fail to keep it, and so we come under its curse. Paul said, we're like slaves in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, and the law is like our hard taskmaster who beats us down because of our failure to keep it. Now, Remember when we were looking at that, we saw how ultimately that was all designed to drive us to Christ. But in verse 25, Paul develops this more, and he says that old Mosaic covenant, it's kind of like the present Jerusalem, the actual physical city that's in slavery with her children. Now, that was Paul's way of speaking of the Judaism of his day. Their headquarters was in Jerusalem. That was a system of religion based on self-effort keeping the law, trying to be obedient and good enough and devoted enough to get into God's good books. They were not giving an adequate place to Jesus. And Paul said that whole system is like slavery, self-effort, and it ruins you. But then contrasting that, in verse 26, Paul says, Sarah represents the Jerusalem above, which is free, She is our mother. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, when Paul speaks of the Jerusalem above, he's speaking of heaven. That is the place where God dwells, the true temple of the living God. He's saying, with God, that is the place of the Christian's birth, the source of a new covenant. And to help us get what he means here when he speaks of the Jerusalem above, do you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? In John chapter 3, verse 3, when Nicodemus was confused about how he could know that he was right with God, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, most translations will have a footnote to tell you that that Greek word, anothen there, born again, can also be translated from above. So one way to translate John 3, verse 3, that would be totally warranted would be to say, Jesus is saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, what Paul is doing in speaking of the Jerusalem above, the heavens above, he's saying the source of true salvation is not in self-effort, but it is found in God himself. And then stay with me in verse 27. He points out that not just the source of our salvation comes from God, but there are incredible results of our salvation that flow from God. What's Paul doing in verse 27 when he cites this Old Testament passage, Isaiah 54? Well, he's picking up in Isaiah 54 a passage that was originally addressed to the Israelites in slavery and exile. They were in the darkness of their sin and its consequences. And Paul quotes what is written in Isaiah 54 verse 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, when Paul quotes this from Isaiah 54, he's saying God has done something to bring us, like Sarah, from a place of barrenness and darkness and desolation to a place of joy, fruitfulness, and blessing. He's saying this old covenant, Hagar, Ishmael, self-effort, it's all slavery. But over here, there's a new covenant. It's from above the Jerusalem, it's from God. And it leads to Rejoicing, grace for the barren, singing, joy, new life. And we have to ask, what's in Paul's mind that makes him go to Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1 and quote that? Because what he's looking for in his mind is, Is there a place in the Old Testament where we see God acting to bring out of barrenness fruitfulness and then people rejoicing in their freedom? And he goes straight to Isaiah 54 verse 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Now this might sound like a very obvious question, but what what chapter comes before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53. Now, what is Isaiah 53 all about? It is a chapter in the Old Testament, more than any other, that speaks of a promised coming son. The one who would be despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. But 
but the will of the Lord, we're told, would prosper in this promised son's hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, God would see and be satisfied. Isaiah says, God says, the righteous one, my servant, will bear the iniquity of my people and make many to be counted righteous. What has God done to bring joy, liberty, and fruitfulness out of barrenness? He's promised a son. And then after all of the unpacking in Isaiah 53 that speaks of the work of this coming son, then comes Isaiah 54.1. So rejoice, O barren one. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Why? Because through this powerful act of God, through the promised son, new birth is brought forth. God did a supernatural work. He kept his promise that a son would be given who would bring blessing. That promise was not exhausted in Isaac, but it pointed to the Father's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God would keep his promise. He would give a son, one greater than Isaac, one who would liberate slaves for their their captivity and slavery of sin, failing to keep God's ways from constantly living in our guilt that we're not good enough. God would send a son to bear our iniquities, to set us free from slavery under the law and our failure to keep it so that we could be brought into a place of liberty, joy, fruitfulness, and blessing. And now, if we rest in the promised son, we are those who are born from above born of the Spirit, as Paul says in verse 29. Born not of the flesh, like Ishmael. Not of the will of man by self-effort, like Ishmael, but born of God. So, I know that was pretty dense. If you're confused, hopefully this will just help you come back to me. Paul is saying, Hagar and Ishmael, Sarah and Isaac, they represent two entirely different ways of salvation. Hagar and Ishmael represent salvation through self-effort. That ends up with an identity of slavery and fear. Sarah and Isaac represent salvation by God's grace, accomplished by the promised son. They represent complete dependence on the promises of God, that blessing comes by resting in the promise that in the Son, we will be free. This is a salvation that finds its source in God and not ultimately in man. So we have to ask, what camp are we in? Are you trying to add to God's work your own self-effort? Are you relating to God on the basis of your own efforts and saying, I've just got to try harder and then God will like me? That's 
a whole other way to salvation that doesn't work? Or are you resting your whole faith in the promised son? Back to like our lifeguard illustration at the beginning. Will you just let him save you? God from above has come down. He's promised a son. He said, through this son, all nations will be blessed. As I said, that wasn't exhausted in Isaac. It pointed ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. God has done a work in Jesus through his death and resurrection that brings grace for the barren, grace for the broken, liberty to the slave, freedom for the guilty one that cannot know if their efforts have been enough to save them. But maybe a second question is even more important, not just what camp are you in, are you living in the goodness of the freedom that God has given to you in the promised son? Those who have experienced life in the promised son are to be the barren ones who are rejoicing. And that's where Paul goes in the final third of our text. He has set up the illustration of two mums and two sons. He's explained and developed the illustration, two ways of salvation. And now finally, in verses 28 to 31, he applies the illustration. Where in verse 21, he was speaking directly to those who wanted to go back to under the law living. Now, in verse 29, he turns to address the Christians in Galatia and us here today through the Spirit and makes three statements to help them and us fully appreciate who we are now in Christ and how we live in the goodness of the liberty we have in Christ. Statement one, verse 29. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Every person in Christ is an Isaac. Your spiritual birth, if you're a Christian, was brought about by a promise. What promise? Well, we could go to many places in the Old Testament, but I want to go here. First of all, the promise that God made to Abraham. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham was really despondent over not being able to have a son? God took him outside on a starry night and he said, look up to the stars. See if you can count them. So shall your offspring be. Now when we understand that biblically, we understand that that promise was ultimately Speaking of the church, a people in Christ. The, the Apostle Paul has already explained that it is, it is by being in Christ who was a descendant of Abraham. He was the promised seed, really, who would bring blessing on all nations. If you're in Christ, then you're truly children of Abraham. You're the ones who inherit the blessing. And so God made a promise to Abraham and said, look, those who believe my promises and who are counted righteous by just trusting my promises, 
There's going to be so many, they're going to be like the stars in the heavens. God brought about your new birth. God put you into Christ. You are not born by the will of man, ultimately, or by self-effort. You're born entirely by a sovereign, kind, gracious act of God. When your salvation came about, God was keeping his promise. Another star. Another fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. So shall your offspring be. He just was keeping his promise. Your salvation is far bigger than just you. You are a result of God's faithfulness to his promises. It is sheer grace that has made you who you are. Think about it. Could Abraham and Sarah or Isaac boast in what they had brought about? No. It was grace for the dead and barren. That's our story. Because we were spiritually dead, spiritually barren. And God, through a promise, brought life out of deadness for you. Fruitfulness out of barrenness. God did it, not you. And here's what's so amazing. If God consistently keeps his promises as he has demonstrated he does. We know whatever other promises he's made to us, he will keep. Promises like this, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Will he keep the promise to do that? Yes. There's where you rest your assurance. My salvation started in God, will be sustained by God, and I will safely be brought home by God. If he started a work, he'll see it through because it's up to him to be faithful. Promises like, I will be with you always. He will keep that. So there's our first statement. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. This, if you're in Christ, this is who you are. You're a child of promise. You were brought about by God's promise. Supernatural work of divine grace brought you into spiritual life. You can say, I'm an Isaac. Brought about by a promise. Brought about by supernatural grace. And because he kept his promise, he's going to keep all his other promises. And you can rest there. Second statement then, verses 29 and 30. It's a little bit different. Paul draws on a bit of the Genesis account where Ishmael mocks and derides Isaac. We can read that. There's a time where Ishmael was just kind of laughing at Isaac and mocking him. And Paul uses this account to say, you know, just like then, so it is now. He says it's religious legalists, like the religious legalists in Galatia, who really give us who trust in Christ a hard time. Those who are of that sort of slavish self-effort, religiosity, legalism camp, 
They're the ones that seem to give the true Christians the hardest time. And just like then, it is now. John Stott has made a helpful observation of this. He said, it is not always just the world that persecutes us as Christians, but our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. It's always been so. Jesus was persecuted by the religious hierarchy of his day, and so it is often the religious establishment that seeks to squash new birth movements that are born of the Spirit today. And so in verse 30, Paul expresses what he wants the believers in Galatia to do with the Judaizers and their false teaching. Get rid of it. This is not about being unloving and just throwing out children or anything. This is actually Paul saying, look, those Judaizers, those slavish thinkers, those legalists, you've got to get rid of them from your church in Galatia. They're poisoning you. Don't make any room for heresy in your church. And in another way, Paul's also saying, expect hardships in this world as Christians. Everyone will be out to try and pull the gospel away from its true meaning. Always forces, currents, trying to get the gospel away from being free and a sovereign work of God by His grace, get it pulled over into adding human effort. And Paul's saying, look, you've got to take that really seriously. You've got to keep and preserve the gospel in Galatia. Expect everything to be against you as you do that. But you be ruthless. Be focused. Guard the gospel. Expect difficulties. But remember, you are those, and you see this in verse 30, you're the ones who are going to inherit the real blessing because you're in Christ. Then, finally, the third statement that the Apostle Paul makes here is again a statement of identity, and it comes right at the end in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He's saying here we're not just children of promise, but we are children of freedom. As Paul says then in chapter 5, verse 1, which we'll be picking up next time, it is for this freedom that we are set free. And what he's saying there is, walk in the goodness of your in Christ freedom. You see, as I said at the beginning, it's easy to be an Isaac, but to live like an Ishmael. What do I mean? Well, we understand we're saved by grace, but then we relate to God as if his approval of us, his love for us, is based on our self-effort. That's slavish thinking. That's Ishmael thinking. That's not Isaac thinking. Isaac thinking is, I'm born of a promise. I'm born from above. I am totally set free from my sins, from my faults, from all my wrongdoing. I'm totally set free from it all just by trusting in the promised son. Because as Isaiah 53 says, he bore our sin, he took it all away so that we can be free. And so now we can rejoice. And so this takes us back again to our opening illustration. This passage contributes to the overall argument of the letter to the Galatians. Jesus Christ is enough to make you right with God. He alone is all you need. 
He's the lifeguard who does everything to save you when you're drowning. You don't have to thrash or kick or try to be the hero. All you have to do is rest your faith in him and let him save you. And then you respond like Isaiah 54 verse 1 instructs us to respond and like Galatians 4 27 instructs us to respond with songs of freedom. You know what's been in my mind as I've thought about this all week? I don't know if you've seen the movie Braveheart. There's that big bit where William Wallace has fought the battle against the English oppressors. Sorry, Simon and others. And he feels like a slave his whole life and, and he fights and then eventually he's willing to die for slavery. But just in his last breath, he shows that he's not going to bow down to slavery. And what does he do? He just shouts, freedom! That's the Christian's life. It's a cry, a song. Free in Christ. I rest in him. I'm set free from my sin. I'm set free from legalism. I'm set free from guilt. Worrying about self-effort. If I've ever done enough, I'm set free from it all. Freedom in Christ alone. Paul's saying to the Galatians, why would you go back to slavery? Don't do it. And God would speak to us here today in your mind. Why would you go back to thinking like a slave? Your self-effort, your low-level guilt that you beat yourself up about all the time, why would you go there? You're free in Christ, a child of promise, liberated from all of that so that you can just rejoice in the God who saved you. Let him save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for this very compelling illustration that Paul gives to the Galatians and us to help us really understand that salvation through self-effort leads to slavery and fear, but salvation through trusting the promise of God, that promise, he won't count our sins against us if we have Christ. That is how we're set free. Resting in that promise, God will keep that promise. You will not, Father, count our sins against us if we are in your Son. You won't because you'll keep your promise. And that's how we can know freedom. And Father, we thank you for this powerful illustration. We pray that it will have been clear to us this morning. And as we respond now, singing of how we are children of promise by faith, And as we gather around the Lord's table to eat the bread and drink the cup and remember where this new covenant was established by Christ himself, may our hearts sing the song of freedom today again and may we rejoice in grace for the barren. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing the first part of By Faith as we prepare to have communion together. If you come in, and you miss the table uh, where there's bread and wine on the table, and you're planning to share in communion, but you didn't pick up the bread and wine on the way past, just this is a good moment to just nip to the back and do that if you're sharing in communion. But let's stand together now and we'll sing.